This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Rage in the sky. Passengers have hit flight attendants in the face, interfered with the flight crew, and refused to wear masks, among other things. I'm not sitting down. I am one last time for what? What you gonna do? What? 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 Come down, what? Who are you telling me? Don't do nothing. They ain't and ladies and gentlemen, I'm gonna need you to remain. We're gonna park the airplane at the gate. Police and authorities will be boarding the plane to arrest the gentleman. The reports of unruly passengers during the pandemic this year far exceeded anything the Federal Aviation Administration has seen in the past, yet few passengers face criminal charges. Joining me is Alan Levin, Bloomberg Aviation reporter. Start by telling us about this passenger on the Alaska Airlines flight in January from Seattle. Yeah, that's a, actually a really interesting case. This was a, an Alaska Airlines flight in Seattle. It was just about to depart, and a man on the flight allegedly began calling 911, reporting a hijacking. It was quite vivid. He said there was a hijacker who had a flight attendant uh, at knife point. There were multiple calls. The plane, uh, I guess it began to depart, but then uh, authorities notified the airport. plane was taxied to a secure area. Uh, police came on board to sort the situation out, and during this time, he also called the FBI and made some sort of vague reference to a bomb. Now, you know, once a hijacking is reported like that, you have to rescreen the passengers, and they had to rescreen all the bags to make sure there was no bomb on board, check all the passengers to make sure nobody had a knife that was reported, et cetera. And under federal law, making a false report of a hijacking is quite a serious criminal charge. It carries a five, up to five-year prison term along with a hefty fine, et cetera. But this is sort of what happens to some of these unruly passenger cases. It was referred to the county prosecutor. And under Washington state law, there is no equivalent charge to making a false hijacking report. There are, you know, serious felonies in the state for things like making a threat. But in this particular case, a hoax threat, there was no knife, there was no bomb, there was no real threat. So they've not been able to charge this individual. They're looking at making filing charges on a misdemeanor count of making a false report, which is, you know, a less serious matter. And we were not able to determine why, but the case was never referred to the federal government and no charge, federal charges are being brought. So it sort of illustrates the difficulty in these cases. Tell us about the spike in cases. By all accounts, it's been a huge increase. This year so far, there have been about 3,600 reports of unruly passengers. They sort of run the gamut, but by and large, the biggest category is some form of people not wanting to wear their face masks, which are now required. So either objecting to wearing the mask or not wearing it properly or becoming abusive to the flight attendants after they ask you to wear the mask, that seems to be one of the biggest common denominators. There also has been a thread, a lot of these events, occurred just before and just after the January 6th storming of the U.S. Capitol. And so there's kind of a political thread that runs through this phenomenon as well. In some cases, people were escorted off flights for voicing political views loudly and that sort of thing. And, thing. And 
So do people actually get arrested? Who arrests them? Well, that's one of the issues that makes it difficult is that the federal government, by and large, oversees the aviation industry, and that's largely the case when it comes to behavior on a plane. But with only a rare exceptions, there are no federal agents at airports. So it tends to be some sort of a local police force. Each airport is different. You know, sometimes they have their own police force at the airport, but often it's the state or local entity in which the airport is located. So they will escort people off aircraft. At times they'll make an arrest. But, you know, if the activity occurred in flight, it may not even be in that police force's jurisdiction, and so they may have limited ability to bring charges. We have seen cases where the plane is parked at the gate and the door is open, and there's an assault on a plane, for example. That may fall under the local police's jurisdiction. But generally speaking, when the doors are closed and the plane has pulled back and begins to taxi to the runway, and then also obviously in flight, it becomes a federal issue. And so the powers of the local police are somewhat limited. What about the FAA? Why aren't they handling these cases? So that's a very good question. The FAA, I think it's fair to say, is the entity that jumped in most aggressively here to try to stem this big increase. But they only have civil powers. So they can't bring criminal charges, but they have initiated 95 enforcement actions. And what that allows them to do is to collect fines, but they're not a police force and they don't have legal authority to bring any criminal charges. So when there's an incident, let's say, where there is a physical altercation and someone gets injured, what happens in those cases? Are charges brought? Well, it sort of runs the gamut, but there's a big distinction to be made between two passengers fighting each other, which, you know, is obviously serious and could injure other people, but that's distinct from a passenger hitting and or otherwise interfering with the work of a flight crew. That is governed by a federal statute, and it carries a penalty up to 20 years by a serious offense. I would say they rarely charge people who aren't terrorists with that charge to the fullest extent. But we checked the federal dockets around the country, and there were a total of 12 cases filed under that statute this calendar year so far. How difficult are these cases for federal prosecutors to make? These are cases where the witnesses all disperse. You may get statements from flight attendants, but they likely weren't obtained from a trained, you know, FBI agent or somebody who knows what's needed to bring a prosecution. And then it may also require tracking down other passengers who are witnesses. So it can take quite a bit of effort to put a case together. Has there been a push recently to have more passengers criminally charged? Yes. So the airline industry, and that includes their unions, the flight attendant unions in particular on the front line having to deal with this, wrote a letter to the Justice Department last month asking that they take more action to bring charges. Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked about this at a Senate hearing last month, and he said that at least the most egregious cases are clearly criminal matters, not civil. And he said he's still developing a policy, but that they did take it seriously. You know, it's hard when you have such a small number of cases to see any actual trends. I think it's fair to say that so far this year, the number of cases brought, at least under the statute for interfering with a flight attendant, is about the same as we've seen the past two years. They range from about 16 to 20 
cases per year. Thanks, Alan. That's Alan Levin, Bloomberg News aviation reporter. The U.S. Justice Department will investigate the city of Phoenix and its police department for potential civil rights violations, including sweeps of homeless encampments, the third such investigation of policing since President Joe Biden took office. Joining me is David Harris, a professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law and host of the Criminal Injustice podcast. So why is the Justice Department launching this civil investigation? The Civil Rights Division and the federal government can't investigate any old police department and thinks might be doing a better job than it is. The only reason that they can launch these investigations is if they think that there may be a pattern of constitutional violations here. This was certainly true with the investigation launched of Minneapolis police and Louisville police. And here they have information that leads them to think that there is a pattern of constitutional level abuse. So they do this not because there's one bad incident or one bad shooting or even a couple. They do this because they see a pattern of violations of constitutional rights. In the case of the police departments that they've recently investigated in a similar way, in Minneapolis, the death of George Floyd was a motivating factor. And in Louisville, the shooting of Breonna Taylor was a motivating factor. This is based on whether law enforcement is violating the rights of homeless people in Phoenix by seizing and disposing of their belongings. That's the headline uh, allegation at this point. But the Justice Department made it clear that that wasn't the only thing that they were looking at. They were looking at uses of force. They were looking at the way that the Phoenix police have handled demonstrations and a number of other things. The things that they have in common is that all of them are potential violations of constitutional rights. So it's not a matter of not following best practices or making a mistake here and there. It's a matter of finding a pattern of constitutional-level wrongdoing. In the case of Phoenix, the thing that uh, apparently drew the most attention from law enforcement uh, perspectives was the way that the city was dealing with its homeless population, sweeps through homeless encampments, and so forth. It sounds like what's happening in the other cities that they've chosen to investigate is more serious than what's happening in Phoenix. Now, is that just because there's other reasons, or is that because it is less serious? Well, I think the important thing to look for is not the seriousness of the sort of uh, headline incident that might have attracted notice in the first place. Uh, even one very bad in-custody death or shooting is not enough to allow the federal government to have jurisdiction over a local police department. What they're looking for is a pattern of use of force, a pattern of bad search warrant executions like they had in Louisville. Uh, it's that pattern that makes the difference. The fact that we, the public, might know about just one important bad incident isn't what really brings in the Justice Department. It might attract the attention of the Justice Department first, but the, the thing that keeps them there and that gives them jurisdiction is the existence of a pattern of constitutional violations. That can be stop and frisk. That can be the use of force. 
that can be uh, the way that people are uh, prosecuted, the way that complaints are handled. As long as there's a pattern of constitutional violation, it doesn't require the most serious kind of catastrophe like the death of George Floyd. What's important is whether or not there's a pattern of violation of the Constitution. If you have that, it's enough to give the Justice Department jurisdiction. What I found interesting was that Attorney General Merrick Garland said too often we ask law enforcement officers to be the first and last option for addressing issues that should not be handled by our criminal justice system. Well, it's very interesting to hear how he talked about it, because what it was was an acknowledgement of what many of us have come to understand really only in the last year, and that is we look uh, at police as the answer to everything, and they're clearly not. They're not trained to respond to mental illness and mental health crisis. They're not really trained to respond to crises of homelessness or drug addiction, and too often they're the only agency in any given city that may be available to do those sorts of things. And they're given those tasks, even though we could easily imagine that an agency made up of social workers or other kinds of people would be better suited to these kinds of tasks. Police are police. They're going to use the tools that they know and the training that they have. And so what Garland is saying is that he's acknowledging that maybe police weren't the right ones to do this. Maybe it's not their fault that they got sent in like that. But in any case, since they were there and they were given that job, the end result may have been a pattern of constitutional violation. So it's a way of talking and addressing a problem that acknowledges the difficulties that law enforcement has been forced to confront that maybe aren't really in its wheelhouse and then aren't the best suited for police. We should have other agencies doing that. What do they do when they go in in, during these investigations? How are they better suited than, let's say, an, an internal investigation by the local police department? The first thing is that they are independent of local law enforcement and prosecution. And if there is a longstanding pattern of constitutional violation, of unconstitutional policing, typically people uh, in the jurisdiction would not trust an internal investigation of the police investigating themselves. That's uh, one of the reasons that we have civilian oversight in many cities of this country. So number one is that they are independent of any of the local actors. Number two, they do a comprehensive review They talk to the public, they talk to officers, they talk to the command staff, and you better believe that they get every document out of that police department that might shine a light on current practices and patterns so that they really understand what has gone on in the past, what the structures are, why things are functioning or not functioning the way that they are. So it's a very deep and comprehensive look at how the department is operating on a day-to-day basis, month to month, and year in and year out, so that they have a full and complete picture. And they do this with input from all of the stakeholder groups you can think of, from the public to the inside of the police department to the police union. I think in the past, and I say this from the point of view of Pittsburgh having been the very first 
very first big city to undergo one of these consent decrees back in 1997. In the past, they wouldn't do such a thorough job. They wouldn't talk to all the stakeholders. They might not talk to the public. And therefore, they didn't always come up with the best answers. They have a much wider view of things now. Uh, they want to take into account everybody's uh, a point of view. Uh, they want to know the full picture of what's happening. It sounds really intense. How long do these investigations take? They can take a while. It depends on the degree of cooperation that they get from the municipality and from the police department. Um, it depends on what kind of resistance they might meet internally in the police department um, and how many stakeholder groups they figure they need to talk to. Uh, already, I was reading that in Minneapolis and in Louisville, where they've been working on this already for some months, they've talked to something like a thousand different people in each of those places. So you'd expect an investigation that will last months. The most important thing is that they be thorough and that they get it right uh, so that they can come out of it with a comprehensive plan for uh, rebuilding, reinforcing, even recreating the necessary structures to give the people of Phoenix policing that obeys the Constitution and that gives them the kind of public safety service that they need. So they take the time that, that, that they need. If there's more resistance, it takes more time. Since Garland became the AG in March, there are three civil rights investigations of police undertaken by the Justice Department. What does that signal? Is it too much, too soon? No, I don't think so, because the incidents and, and the precipitating events in both Louisville and Minneapolis uh, told you from the first minute of the new administration that there would be pattern of practice investigations in those cities. I think that was a total non-surprise. This is really the first one, if you look at it that way. And uh, launching the first one in the first few months of the administration, no, I don't think that's too much too soon. Uh, I think that we should expect more of these. We know that the Trump administration basically shut this process down entirely. Former Attorney General Jeff Sessions went into that job uh, announcing, well known as an, uh, an opponent of these investigations, that there was going to be no more of this stuff. He considered it wrong, even though it's a federal statute that authorizes it. And uh, Attorney General Bill Barr was really no better. And so it's not a surprise at all that we have the first of these in Garland's first few months, along with the totally expected investigations into Minneapolis and Louisville. So in the past, it usually ends up being a consent decree. How have these worked out in the past? Have some of them worked better than others? Yes. Uh, in a word, absolutely yes. Uh, some of them, the, the process has been much longer than anybody would hope. Uh, in at least one case, New Orleans, uh, they needed a second intervention when the first proved inadequate. Uh, here in Pittsburgh, where I live, the first consent decree to ever be done in a big city uh, did a lot for the police department in those five years that it was in effect. Uh, but within just a couple more years, there had been a turnover of mayors and police chiefs and so forth, and there were very few people in the higher echelon of either the police chief the city that was very committed to the agreement anymore, and therefore it kind of fell away. 
in Cincinnati, it did really uh, transform that police department. And it's a much better police department than it used to be, even now, almost 20 years later. So it, you know, some of them have been more successful than others. I think that's fair to say. Uh, are they costly? Yes, they are. Um, but the, the, the price of unconstitutional policing, people need to remember, that has a price, too. It has a price in the confidence of people in their police department, their belief that the police department is legitimate and is on their side. And then, of course, the millions and millions of dollars that many cities have to pay when police officers violate the law and the Constitution. They have to pay those in damages. So any thoughts about the cost of these things and the length of time they take, you have to compare that to not doing them. Uh, and there is a substantial cost to lack of intervention as well. Thanks so much for being on the show, David. That's David Harris. He's a professor at the University of Pittsburgh Law School and host of the Criminal Injustice Podcast. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.